I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of the Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Once again, we are in Luke, Luke 19 uh, and into 25. So Luke 19, 45 um, through to, verse, uh, to chapter 20, verse 8. Luke 19, 45. As he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, sorry, teaching the people of the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for your holy word. And we praise you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, who came to earth and through his words and his deeds perfectly portrayed the word of God and fulfilled the word of God. And Lord, as we look at these words about the word of God this morning, these words about Christ, we realize that that Christ is a point of division. That some will hear these words and will rejoice and will worship and will submit to the authority of Christ. But others will chafe at and reject and rebel against the authority of Christ. And Lord, we acknowledge that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit that all of us would rebel. And so we pray, Lord, for the work of your Spirit in our hearts to quicken these words, Lord, to our our minds and our hearts and our consciences that we might consciously submit to Christ and all of his authority for who he is. Lord, we pray that that would be true for those who are, are already born again. And we pray, Lord, that also through the work of your Spirit that you use these words to help people to see who Jesus Christ really is and that you would grant faith and repentance in Christ, that they too might submit to his authority and worship him for who he is. We ask all of these things in his majestic and wonderful name. Amen. Well, as I was talking to the kids about about people saying, you know, you're not the boss of me, it, it reminds me of back when I was in elementary school and the kids who, who liked bossing others around. It was especially true in the, in the playground and 
There, there was ones who were constantly trying to make the rules or trying to change the rules. And often it was this, these kids were, we also had another word for, we called them teacher's pets. And so we had, we had one reply to kids who were like this. We said, you're not the boss of me. I think, again, the kids are still saying this stuff today. And the reality is kids say it. Adults might not say it, but they think it. Adults might not say you're not the boss of me, but they're thinking that when, they, when they, someone says something that runs up against what they think is right or what they believe. But the reality is that, that nobody likes being around a controlling person. And as I was reflecting on these things, I recognized that I used to be that guy. I used to be the controlling person. I think about, I remember for a number of my single years when, when I was a, a house leader in a, in a men's house. And that, that was true in the, the last two churches that, that I was at in my single years. I, I led a, a ministry to the single men of the church. It was a, a men's house. And I really think this is a great ministry model where if you have a bunch of, of single guys and, and you have somebody who is, is older, and, and I was much older and, and, and had been a Christian longer, was able to actually talk about the Word of God and bring the Word of God to bear. But, but it could be challenging depending on the support that, that you get from the church and also especially depending on the personalities of the guys living in the house. And for my part, I've got to say that, that at times I, in my trying to control behavior, I strain the relationship. Now, despite that, and in some cases when, when there was guys who really wanted to grow in the Word, deep friendships were, were kindled, and, and, and you know, some of these guys were, remain friends to this day. But in others, there was veiled or, or not so veiled animosity. And a number of the men, in fact, many of them, proved actually to be unbelievers. But I, again, have to take personal responsibility because I realized that at times I was controlling. And, and, and it was challenging because I was given authority to lead, but when the guy's actions or attitudes didn't, didn't line up with how they're supposed to act or, or behave, that, that, that sometimes I would try to control them. I'd try to make them change. I'd try to be the Holy Spirit, forcing them to repent of sin or, or making them conform to what I thought was righteous behavior. It really didn't make for a Christ-honoring relationship. And I realized, I began to see through the conflict. Again, it's really out of all those guys, only, only one of the guys that really is, is, remains a really close friend to this day. But you know that the single biggest thing that helped me to change was a growing understanding of God's sovereignty. As I was exposed to the doctrine that's commonly referred to as Calvinism, I began to understand that God is in control and I'm not. And it freed me from the, from the burden of trying to, to sanctify people according to my standards and my timetable. And if you think about, about the conflicts that you have in, in your relationships, it's probably especially in marriage and, and in parenting, Quite often it's because you want the other person to change according to your standards when you want them to change. 
And, and it's true also in a relationship to the church. And I think even as a, as, as a, a young, well, youngish minister, that, that these are issues in situations that I had to go through in order to learn. And, and I'm, I'm not going to say I've, I've arrived there in that area or in any area of sanctification, but, but by God's grace, I've grown. And, and when, when, you, if, when you talk to people who know me best, they wouldn't describe me as controlling. You, you can ask Jane about that. She'll tell you. By God's grace, I've changed. Now, I understand people not wanting to feel controlled. But often, it's a problem with authority, even with God-given authority. People don't naturally like submitting to others. As I often say, children don't like submitting to parents, wives don't like submitting to husbands, and men don't like submitting to anybody. It's because people naturally don't like submitting to God. People don't like submitting to others because they want to be in control, because they want to be driving the bus. And so they push back against authority, whether it's in the family, in the church, in the workplace. It just, it's, it's a common thing, common theme. And we're going to see it here in our passage this morning. With the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, we, we have truly arrived at the third and the final section of Luke's gospel account. And the drama unfolds in the temple as Jesus cleanses the temple and then teaches in the temple. This brings him into a head-to-head conflict with those who directly challenge his authority. As we're going to see, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who make up the ruling body, as I talk to the children about, knowing, known as the, the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, come to Jesus and question his authority. And why do they question his authority? It's because they want to be the authorities. They want to be the authorities. They don't want to submit to Jesus. They want to get rid of Jesus. The wicked intention of the religious authorities is now clear. They want to destroy Jesus. Last week, remember, we heard Jesus' prophecy about the people's rejection of him. Now we're going to see the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is teaching the people in the temple, and, and it, it is there, it's the people's present attentiveness to Jesus' teaching that's going to keep the Pharisees and the, the Sanhedrin from attacking him immediately. So then, this, this third and this final section of, of Luke's gospel account focuses on the authority of Jesus and the challenges to it from the religious authorities. It's a theme that's going to dominate the next few chapters. It's going to culminate in the cross. This morning we're going to see the the Sanhedrin seek to destroy Jesus, verses 45 to 48. Then we're going to see the Sanhedrin seek to discredit Jesus in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And then we'll see the Sanhedrin soundly dumbfounded by Jesus in verses 3 to 8. So the Sanhedrin is going to try to entrap Jesus, but he is going to trap them in their own trap. Jesus begins by turning over the tables in the temple, but in the end, he's going to turn the tables on the Sanhedrin. So first of all, verses 45 to 48, the Sanhedrin seeks to destroy Jesus. Jesus is in Jerusalem. 
Luke doesn't speak of, of his arrival directly in chapter 19, but, but evidently Jesus had actually gone into the city on, on the day previous to this event. And because it was late in the day, he had actually left again. And then the next day he came back. It's recorded for us in Mark 11, verses 11 to 15. So this is the next day after his arrival into the city. And his destination was the temple. Now this is the first mention in Luke's gospel account of Jesus being in the temple since the time that Jesus was 12, where he'd stayed back in Jerusalem uh, during a family pilgrimage for, to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And remember, his parents had no idea where he was, and they went searching for him for three days. And then they finally found him um, in the temple, sitting with the teachers in discussion with them. And he astounded, with, he astounded the teachers with his wisdom even then. And when his parents questioned him, he replied, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So here, today again, we find Jesus in his father's house. And even though Luke doesn't mention it, apart from, from the first time when he was in his dedication, and then, uh, um, and then when he was 12, and then again here, Luke doesn't mention that there were several times that Jesus was actually in the temple. In fact, John records four times that Jesus visited the temple for the Passover in John's gospel account. So again, Jesus is in his father's house again. And again, he's going to astound with his wisdom. Jesus is going to impress the people and he's going to silence the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us what Jesus is here to do. He came to the temple first to drive out those who sold. Now, all four gospel accounts describe Jesus cleansing the temple. John describes Jesus cleansing the temple at, at the beginning of his ministry in, in John chapter 2, right after this first, the first miracle of the wedding, in the, the wedding of Cana, where he turned the water to wine. And, and so there was at the beginning of his ministry. And evidently, Jesus cleanses the temple again here at the end of his ministry. And so Jesus finds merchants selling animals in the temple. They would have been in the, in the court of the Gentiles. They were, they were selling animals for sacrifice. And uh, Luke doesn't tell us, but, but there, would have, there were others there. There were money changers in the temple who were exchanging Roman and Greek coins for the, the half shekel temple tax that was, that was stipulated in, in Exodus 30.13. And remember, the Passover is at hand. It's just a few days later. And so the temple mount would have been buzzing with people. And so Jesus sees these merchants and he drives them out of the temple. Matthew and Mark describe Jesus actually physically turning over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And Jesus declares, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So first, in declaring that the temple is to be a house of, of prayer, he's, he's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 56, 7. These will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a called, uh, will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now Luke doesn't mention the all peoples part as Mark does. It, at first, that might seem odd, given the fact that, that Luke's focus, remember he's writing to Theophilus, a, a Gentile, a Roman, 
and so it seems strange that, that, that Luke wouldn't mention this, this to the Gentiles part, but, but as you think about what's happening here and what's about to happen, it, I think the, the answer is, is pretty simple. Because I believe the answer is that, is that with the coming death of Jesus, the temple's no longer going to have the function it once performed. That it will have served its purpose as an earthly representation of Christ in a sacrifice. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Jesus knew how formal and ignorant the ministers of the temple were. He knew how soon the temple and its services were to be destroyed, the veil to be rent, and the priesthood to be ended. But he would have us know that a reverence is due to, in every place where God is worshipped. The reverence he claimed for the temple was not for the temple as a house of sacrifice, but as the house of prayer. End quote. And what's going to happen is, is very soon, remember Jesus just said that, that soon the, 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 not just the temple, but the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and it's going to take place in AD 70. But even before that, people are no longer going to have to travel to Jerusalem and to the temple for worship. Because the gospel is going to go out from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There, there, there is a change. This is a new development in redemption history. And Jesus says that, that not only did they fail to make the temple a house of prayer, but they'd actually made it a den of robbers. It's one level of sin to not do what you're supposed to do. It's another layer of sin then to do the opposite of what you're supposed to do. He's quoting here Jeremiah 7.11. This has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. Now the context here is, is that the people of Israel have, are going after immorality and idolatry. And then hypocritically coming to the temple to call on the name of the Lord and to celebrate his deliverance. And in, in doing this, Jesus is indicting not just the merchants that he's cast out, but the authorities who allowed it. In fact, they didn't just allow it, they encouraged it because they themselves profited from the practice. Some profited financially by, by getting a cut from the proceeds, and others profited socially by gaining authority through what was taking place in the temple. And so Jesus cleansed the temple. That was his first starting place to, to stop the wrong behavior. And then he began to teach others about what they're supposed to do. So he didn't stop at, at cleansing in the temple. He began to teach in the temple. The temple was meant to be a center for teaching. And so Jesus restored that function. In fact, Jesus taught in the temple daily. Much of the last week of, of Jesus' ministry prior to his crucifixion is spent teaching and especially here in the temple. And the people loved his words and his works. Matthew includes a continuation of the praise of the people from the triumphal entry, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. But again, when the Pharisees heard this, they rebuked Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying? They'd effectively done the same thing in the last chapter where they, where they had, sorry, the, in the last sermon when we saw that they had actually told Jesus to silence those who were praising him. And Jesus said there, well, if these are silent, even the rocks 
will cry it against him. He's showing that, the, that again, the rocks are, are, are more spiritually alive than, than the dead religious authorities. But here Jesus replies, quoting Psalm 8-2, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So as Jesus was teaching, what he taught was, was diametrically opposed to what the Pharisees were teaching. And in fact, what, what all the religious authorities were teaching. Each group, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the, the Sadducees and the civic leaders, that we're going to see they're all going to come at Jesus and wave after wave after wave in, in the, over the next few weeks. They, they, they might have had different theological opinions, but they all shared an increasing hatred of Jesus. And you can really see the progression as you track back through Luke. Back in Luke chapter 6, we saw the Pharisees filled with, with fury and, and plotting what they might do to Jesus. And then in chapter 11, after Jesus pronounced woes against them, they questioned him, trying to catch him in his words. We're going to see them trying that same tactic here this morning. But now, openly, Luke tells us that they tried to destroy, or they sought to destroy him. They sought to destroy Jesus. His power offended them. His popularity offended them. His parables offended them. His presence offended them. His person offended them. They wanted dead. But they couldn't pull it off, at least not yet, because the people were hanging on his words. If they tried to have Jesus arrested or, or stoned summarily on the spot, they were afraid that the people would, would rise up against them, that it would, would turn back on them, and that they would get into trouble with the people. So they came up with a plan. They came up with a plan. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. The Sanhedrin seeks to discredit Jesus. So now it's a subsequent day, and, and Jesus is again in the temple, doing what he did, teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Did you catch that? Jesus was preaching the gospel. Jesus was telling people the good news of the kingdom of God. And the chief priests and the, the scribes and the, the elders came up to Jesus to challenge him. That This was an official inquisition by the Sanhedrin. They were the authorities in their minds. They had gained their position through family heritage and wealth. And in their minds, here's this nobody, this son of a carpenter, acting and teaching with authority in the temple. And again, the people were gathered in vast crowds to listen to him. And so that these men from the Sanhedrin interrogated Jesus. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to find an error or an inconsistency in his teaching. Like I said, this is going to continue throughout chapter 20. They're going to go wave after wave after Jesus. First, they're going to test him on his personal authority. In the coming weeks, we're going to see, him, see them test him politically and theologically. If they couldn't destroy Jesus because of the people, they would discredit him in front of the people. They wanted to publicly make him look bad so they could silence him. And especially they wanted to, to catch him in uttering what they felt was blasphemy so they could have him killed. 
So Jesus was preaching the gospel while his enemies were plotting his life. And we know that these men are going to get their way. They're going to succeed in inciting the people against Jesus, and they're going to succeed in inciting the Romans against Jesus. Jesus is going to be killed. But ironically, in their their wicked scheming, they're going to become the unwitting fulfill the unwitting instruments of the fulfillment of the gospel. As Peter proclaims in his, his sermon in, on Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This was God's plan, but these men were wickedly responsible for the death of Jesus. Yes, they got their way, but in doing it, they fulfilled God's plan. The death of Christ for the sins of his people. So the members of the Sanhedrin approach Jesus while he's teaching them, while he's teaching in the temple. They demand that he tell them by what authority he acted or who gave him his authority. They ordered Jesus. Imagine that. They ordered Jesus to answer them. By what authority he cleared out the temple and by what authority he taught in the temple. Now, Jesus had clearly demonstrated his authority and the source of his authority. The word of God was his authority. He didn't just say, it is written, and then quote random proof texts. In saying it is written, Jesus was declaring where his authority came from. Everything that Jesus taught lined up perfectly with Scripture its proper context and the authorial intent of Scripture. It couldn't be any other way because Jesus Christ, as we sang earlier, is the Word of God incarnate. Jesus is the authority. And so when he quotes the Word of God, he is speaking of his own authority. Again, Jesus had turned over the tables of the money changers And now he's going to turn the tables on the religious authorities as well. Again, they're going to be caught in their own trap. At every point, Jesus is going to prove that their teaching is false, but his teaching is true. So now we see in verses 3 to 8, the Sanhedrin soundly dumbfounded by Jesus. Jesus replies, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He answers their question with a question. Now just as as an aside, if somebody is challenging you on issues of, of faith, it is entirely appropriate and it's entirely wise at times for you to follow Jesus in his, in his example. Many years ago, when I was a young, young Christian, someone close to me was, was asking me question after question after question about my faith. And it became, it was immediately clear that this person did not want to hear the answer, but was trying to attack my faith. 
Maybe you've had conversations like that. They were looking for, for errors or for, for inconsistencies in what I was saying. Now, I was a new Christian, and there, there probably were inconsistencies in what I was saying. I didn't really know the Bible very well at that point. I still don't know it anywhere like, anywhere like I should. But as I, I tried to answer the best I could, I could feel myself getting beat down. And it's interesting. I remember this so well. Like it was yesterday, there was, the television was on in the background, and, and I was kind of absentmindedly sort of flicking channels. I think it was one of those remote ones that didn't have like an actual remote at the time, and I was flicking channels at the time and, and stumbled across some, some Christian programming, and it just... And it, as I was kind of paying attention to that and, and also the questions, I was, I was encouraged in my heart. But, but in those situations, it's, it's entirely appropriate and it's okay to answer the questions or not to answer the questions. But as the questions kept coming, I wonder if maybe I should have answered like the blind man that Jesus healed in John 9. I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? And, and, and this, this could have, rather than, than it being in, in abstract theological terms, it would have brought it home. It would have brought it to the heart of the matter. And it could have led to an opportunity for the gospel. So here, by answering a question with a question, Jesus was demonstrating his authority over the Pharisees. He was saying to them, you're asking me a question? Well, let me... Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now this, this is really, as Daryl Bach says, it's a, it's a multiple choice question with two, only two options. Either John came as a messenger from God or he did not. Only two possible answers. Again, from Bach. One must respond to John because he was from God or ignore him. Which is it? End quote. Now, in answering a question with a question here, Jesus wasn't evading the question. He's actually answering the question. He's really getting to the heart of the matter. And their answer would have actually been the answer to their own question. John the Baptist had proclaimed that the dawning of the kingdom of God and had testified that Jesus is the Messiah. Just think about a couple of the statements John the Baptist made about John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said specifically related to baptism, I baptize with water, but one among you stands who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. So from the Pharisees' perspective, an affirmation that John's authority came from heaven would be also a recognition that the authority of Jesus came from heaven. Right? Moreover, if they accepted that John's baptism came with heavenly authority, then they also should have repented of their sins and accepted him and his baptism and the te his testimony about Jesus. Now, the Pharisees feared men, but John the Baptist didn't. He had pronounced a verdict upon them. He called them a brood of vipers and asked them who warned them to flee from the wrath to come. Clearly, they had not heeded his warning. So again, the authority of John 
was from heaven. Therefore, the authority of Jesus was from heaven. But as we know, the authority of Jesus is infinitely higher. As Jesus says, says of Moses, the, the, um, the builder of the house has, is greater than the house itself. And imagine here that the, the men that had come to Jesus of the Sanhedrin, I imagine them going into a huddle. If we, if we say from heaven, you'll say, well, well why do you not, you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death because they are convinced that, that John was a prophet. Now, of course, as, as the religious authorities, they, they, should have had a, they should have had an opinion about John. They should have had a position on John. Imagine somebody coming to the park over here and proclaiming what they said is the word of God. And all the neighbors are going out to, to listen to this man. Don't you think Joshua and I would, would, would want to go and, and find out what this, what this guy was all about? Of course. Would. How much more should, should these men of the Sanhedrin have, have had a position based on Scripture of who John the Baptist was? It's unthinkable that they would not have rendered a verdict on John's ministry. And they, they actually had, right? But by not accepting John and his ministry, that was their verdict. They rejected it. They believed that John's authority just came from men, but they were fearful of what the people would do to them because the people believed that John had authority from heaven. And in responding this way, they, they revealed that they didn't care one bit about the truth. They were motivated by the fear of man. And so they're guilty of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And they're also guilty, guilty of idolatry. Right? The fear of man. They're fearing man instead of fearing God. Matthew 10, 28 says that, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They didn't fear God. They feared man more. So they were guilty of suppressing the truth and righteousness. They were liars. And they were idolaters. They were also, by their own testimony, agnostic. Agnostic means without the truth. Without knowledge. They said, we don't know where John's authority came from. They lied again. It was a cop-out. They thought they knew. But ironically, it was they who were believing a lie. They didn't want to repent of their sins, so they convinced themselves that John was a nobody with nothing important to say. So they rejected him, just like they were rejecting Jesus now. And maybe you're here this morning rejecting what I'm saying. And unlike John the Baptist, I am a nobody. But if what I'm saying lines up with the Word of God, then it's a very important. You might be able to reject me, but you better not reject the word of God. Jesus, again, has caught them in their own trap. They admitted that they were incapable of making a judgment on John the Baptist. 
If they weren't even able to make a judgment on John the Baptist, then how could they presume to make a judgment on Jesus? But this isn't going to stop them. They're going to hypocritically sit in judgment of Jesus in a few days' time. But it will serve to show that, that they're actually the ones who are under judgment, but they are under God's judgment. And so Jesus responds to them in kind. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. Now, he is, he is not, he's not here being like a spoiled kid who says these sorts of things. He's saying this with authority over them. He's saying, you're, you've given your answer. No, I'm not going to say any more to you about this at this point. Jesus would not tell them the source of his authority. Now, Jesus obviously knew he had authority from heaven. The crowd knew it, and we know it. Again, Jesus knew it, even if these leaders denied it. I think on a level they knew. Jesus has supreme authority even over them, although they refused to admit it. Again, from Daryl Bach. Where does God's wisdom lie? Does it rest with those who will not recognize who commissioned John, or does it lie with the one who shares John's source of authority? When one compares Jesus' real credentials with those of his challengers, is there any question who ministers for God? This contrast is Luke's point. God's way resides with Jesus, end quote. Now, Jesus could have answered by saying, well, you, you know that John's father was actually a, a priest and that, that the angel Gabriel actually appeared to him and pronounced the arrival of John. And you know that the angel Gabriel said that, that John's role is going to be not important. He's going to be important, not in and of himself, but he's going to be important because he is going to testify of me. Now, Jesus could have said that. But he refuses to play their game. Jesus has the credentials. John the Baptist had credentials as well. But again, Jesus has the ultimate credentials as God the Son incarnate. But Jesus is, as we also hear early in the ministry, as, the, as, the, as um, Simeon proclaims in the temple in Luke 2, when, when Jesus, the first time he's in the temple, he says that, that Jesus is going to be a sign that will be opposed. And then many will rise and many will fall because of him. Jesus is going to be opposed. But there will be those who will actually receive him and submit to his authority. And they will, they will rise. They will rise spiritually. One day they will rise to be with Jesus forever. But many will fall, including those who were in positions of authority but rejected his authority. They will fall because of Jesus. It's in Luke 2, 34 and 35. 
Jesus is the sign that is, oppo that is opposed. Many will fall and many will rise because of him. This is not just for Israel. This is for us. This is for you. This is for me. Brings this question to bear on us. Who is Jesus? Where does his authority come from? And if you acknowledge that his authority comes from heaven, then submit to his authority. Bow your knee before King Jesus. Again, this question is a question that, that in, in one sense, we all, we, we all have to answer. What is our relationship with Jesus and his authority? The Sanhedrin was, was guilty of suppressing the truth, of, of idolatry and of agnosticism. And you can see, these have been sins that have been committed throughout these, the ages to this day. You see these sins being committed even in the visible church. That, that many who claim even to be Christians, many even in, in spiritual authority, are guilty of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're, they're guilty of, of, of lying about who God is. They're, they're guilty of, of idolatry, of worshiping other things. They're, worship of, they're, they're guilty of agnosticism, of, of, of denying or, or not seeking God's word in order to have true knowledge about who Jesus is. That's true in the church. It's true of, of religious leaders even now. If we acknowledge the truth here about this, we see these sins even in our own hearts, don't we? There's times that, that we do all of these things and, and a host of many more, that we're all guilty of these things. It all goes back to Adam, our first father, and, and in, in his sin, it was really the, the seed of all of these sins. We have to acknowledge that we all did it, and to a certain extent, we still do it today. We're still sinners. And our only hope, our only hope, whether, whether you are here this morning as a believer or as an unbeliever, as a Christian, someone who's not yet decided or someone is, is still walking in an outward, in active rejection of Jesus, your only hope is to submit to his authority by trusting in him. Your only hope is to go to the crucified Christ and entrusting your eternity to his care. Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus cleansed not just the temple, but he cleanses the hearts. He cleanses the hearts of his, of his bride, of his people. He washes us in the water of his word. He helps us to grow in the knowledge of Him. Is this Jesus your Savior? Is this Jesus your Lord? Go to Him and find forgiveness in Him, for there's no forgiveness by any other name than the name of Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the great gospel. And Lord, for the wonder 
of the fact that Jesus, you allowed yourself to be challenged by those who, who claim to have authority over your people. Those who claim to have authority in your temple denied your authority. Lord, it's a marvel to us that, that you did not just immediately obliterate them and cast them into hell. Yet, Lord, when we step back and we see that this was part of your perfect plan, that you would take on human flesh, that you would come to earth, and Lord, that, that you would obey the law perfectly, be condemned as a sinner by the religious authorities, as a blasphemer by the religious authorities, that you would allow yourself to be judged by these wicked men and handed over to other wicked men to be tortured and crucified. Lord, as we step back from these things, we realize that this is the fulfillment of the gospel. And as we marvel at the fact that in response to Peter's sermon on Pentecost, that, that many even, very likely, of these very men who had stood before Jesus and challenged his authority, themselves repented and came to saving faith, faith in Christ. Lord, you are a great and a glorious God. We marvel, we bow before your omniscience and your omnipotence. Lord, only you could devise this plan of salvation and only you could carry it out. We pray that you would help us all to receive your salvation, that you would carry your salvation out in our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.